Hey all, welcome to the short-term show special episode series on the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. We are doing a 10 episode deep dive into buying short-term rentals in the Smoky Mountains. So we're gonna talk about a lot of things in these episodes and we'll probably be doing a quarterly update from here on out after we finish these 10. So make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get those delivered straight to your phone when they come out. Uh, we do have some supplemental materials for you in addition to the content on this podcast. So any information that you need on current property pricing, you can find on our website at theshorttermshop.com. And we also have, courtesy of our friends over at AirDNA, current AirDNA data for this market on our website as well. So you can check that out on theshorttermshop.com. And if you guys are interested in buying a property in the Smoky Mountains with a short-term shop agent, you can email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com. Or if you just want to learn more about buying short-term rentals in this market, you can join our Facebook group. We've created a 50,000 person community on Facebook all about investing in short-term rentals. You can join that. It's the same title as my book. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. See you guys over there. Hey guys, welcome back to the Short-Term Shop uh, series on investing in the Smoky Mountains. Today we're talking about a very fun, but also very confusing topic for especially new investors. We're talking about data and analysis. So we have another uh, episode that covers expenses that are specific to the market. So this is kind of a two-part analysis episode. But now, right now, we're going to talk about uh, really the data and how to analyze and what you need to be able to analyze a property and things that you need to pay attention to. So I'll go ahead and introduce my panel. You might be might be familiar with some of them. Uh, first, we have Julie McCoy. Julie, who are you? Hey, I am an investor and an agent in the Tennessee Smoky Mountain market. I own uh, seven short-term rentals here and I manage an eighth for my parents. And uh, yeah, I've been an agent for a few years here and part of, been part of the short-term shop since its inception. Mm -hmm, yeah. And then next, the infamous Chuck Kramer. Infamous. Okay. <laughs> been around the industry for a while. Uh, currently, we've got nine listings split between the Smoky Mountains and the uh, Destin Miramar Beach area. Um two that are a lot more similar than most people think. <laughs> um, been around the short-term shop for a while and uh, recently hopped on board with sharing my knowledge and educating people. And we really appreciate that. And last but not least, the data man himself, Mr. Kenny Bedwell of STR Insights. How's it going, Kenny? Tell us about yourself. Introduce yourself. Good. Good. Um, thanks. Uh, so my name is Kenny. I am the CEO and founder of STR Insights, which is a data platform that allows investors to identify the right markets to invest in for them. Uh, I also own six short-term rentals myself. I live in Buffalo, New York. My short-term rentals are all throughout the state of New York. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. All right. Thank you, everyone. I'm really excited to talk about this. And I'm going to apologize to the listeners that I'm a little bit sick. So I'm sorry that I sound like this. Hopefully, you can look past it and uh, find the value in all of our wonderful panelists. So first, the first thing I want to talk about is metrics. So you hear a lot of words and phrases and jargon thrown around when it comes to analyzing and uh measuring the performance of short-term rentals. So there's a lot of those that get thrown around and really only one of them, well, one and a half of them, and I'll I'll circle back to why I said that, but really only one of them is applicable for uh, measuring the performance of short-term rentals, and that is cash on cash return. So does anybody want to hit on what cash on cash return is? Sure. I can take it. <laughs> so cash on cash return is basically how quickly you get your money back that you put into the property. Now, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, the money that you put into a property isn't simply just the down payment and the closing costs, but, you know, furnishings, any sort of rehab or renovation that you put into the property, that would be considered the cash that you put into that property. So how quickly do you get that cash back? So for example, let's just take a rough uh, do a rough example, simple math here. So if I purchase a property for $500,000 and let's say I'm all in, so down payment, closing costs, everything in at $100,000. So 
I'm all in at $100,000. I bought this property for $500,000. So my cash on cash return. So let's assume that at the end of one year of, of income, I net, so this is important, I net $33,000. So don't worry about the gross, just what is the net income on that property after year one? So that's $33,000. So in three years, so if I say 33 times three or 100,000 divided by 33,000, I get three. So in three years, I will get my money back. So the cash on cash return is a percentage. So it's 33%. So that's a 33% or, you know, we'll say one third uh, cash on cash return for that particular property, which is really high in this example. But That was a great explanation of that. Um, One thing that I want to clarify. So I've kind of not gotten into arguments, but I've gotten into disagreements before about what's included in cash on cash return. And For me, and I think for most people, unless I'm wrong, in which case all of you feel free to correct me, uh, it's the cash that you put into the property, like the tangible dollars that you put into or the countable dollars, I guess they're not tangible, versus what you get out net at the end of the year. So what I mean by that is your down payment, any repair or updates costs, things like that, like hard, not hard money like a hard lender. This is just like hard money that you're putting into the property. Uh, what I where I've seen people mess up is they want to put all these extra nebulous things in there. Like I had somebody one time who wanted to include debt pay down and appreciation into cash on cash return. And is that correct, guys? No. 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 <laughs> no. no. <laughs> it's not. Are we gonna fight yeah. over this? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think anybody's gonna argue with that, but um especially appreciation is obviously it's wrong. Don't do it. But this is why appreciation can change in a minute. Appreciation can change off external factors of our overall economy, the local market, things like that. So that should not be included and debt pay down shouldn't be included either. Uh, So it's just the dollars you put in versus the dollars you put out. You got something, Julie? Well, and I was going to say, I've also heard people talk about like the tax benefits, you know, whether that's through a cost segregation study, accelerated depreciation, things like that. Again, I think that just muddies the water. Those can be important in other ways and in other ways of measuring whether a deal is worthwhile or not, but it's not part of the cash on cash metric. And another thing I want to point out that I know I found confusing at first is When we talk about the expenses that go into the property, this is like your initial setup, you know, everything that you're doing before it starts to operate in cash flow. I'm not counting like my monthly utility expenses, the occasional maintenance, um, you know, or six months down the line or replace the sofa. That's not stuff that I'm factoring in. I'm just looking at my upfront expenses because again, otherwise you get into this really messy um, accounting situation that I don't think serves a good purpose. And once the property is operating and, um, and cash flowing, then your expenses get taken out of your gross to leave your net. So I think you should be considering your upfront expenses until you're in operation, you know, and then you measure that against your, your net at the end of the year. Do y'all agree with that? I'm interested. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be you know whatever costs you need to start your operation, things mm-hmm. that you may not think of right off the right off the bat, a license fee, an application fee, um, anything that you wouldn't have had to pay if you weren't going into this. So that's out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's important to to note too that cash on cash can change year to year. So I do want to back up to the cost segregation thing. Um, a lot of people, I'll see people run a cost segregation and they they maximize that benefit in the first year. So let's say that they have a cash on cash return, expected cash on cash return with no cost segregation at 15%. They do the cost segregation and that changes to 35%. Well, that's 35% in the first year. But in year two, it's going to go back down to that 15% again. So that's something that a lot of people don't don't think about or talk about. Um, is that, okay, well, in year two, it's going to go back down to that. And is that still at the level that you want it to be at? You know what I mean? So um, that I, I, I do think you're right. It does muddy the water. It is good to know, 
Um, and it does show the power of what a cost segregation can do, especially for those high W-2 income earners. Yeah. And so I think it's just important to consider these different areas in, you know, in the appropriate context. So this, that's one of the reasons why I don't consider any sort of tax benefit that I get from a property as part of the net revenue on it. Like I've got a big cost segregation for 2022, you know, I'm going to net whatever, you know, I'm going to get X amount of dollars in tax benefit from it, but I'm not counting that as like money, the property made for me as a, you know, as a net um, profit on it. I treat it as an entirely separate thing. So it doesn't go into my cash on cash calculation at all. But another point to saying how it can change year over year too is, okay, upfront, you've got these startup expenses, you're getting your business off the ground. When you have a second entire year, you usually have some momentum, you've got a base of reviews, you've got a lot of other things that put you in a more favorable position for, you know, just a higher revenue in your second year than in your first. And so your cash on cash can increase for that reason. It can increase because the market rates are going up. There are a lot of other reasons why your cash on cash will vary, you know, year over year. Part of that initial calculation you need to do is, is to look at the cash on cash over several years. What's the current economic environment? I mean, we're living through this now where we're, you know, we're seeing inflation somewhere around 8% or so a year. Well, our costs certainly go up, probably even a little bit more than that, but we can't necessarily raise our rates 8%, at least not across the board. So you need to do that math for more than just the first year. Well, and so Chuck, I'm interested if you're looking at year two, are you still considering your, your initial cash in to be your down payment and startup costs, or are you looking at any sort of operating costs going into that? Because yeah. I wouldn't consider I wouldn't consider like my ongoing expenses going up due to inflation as a reflection on my cash on cash at all, just because it wasn't part of my initial startup expenses. Well, I accept that that's going to uh, decrease your um, your net income. So it it all well, factors okay. together, right? Okay. Yes. So so when when I run my pro forma, I have a you know I have an on, a line item for ongoing maintenance, you know, and it, I'll usually set it at a percentage. Um, and that typically, yeah. And that'll carry over year over year, whether that hits it or not. Obviously some years are going to be better than others. Um, but you know, it's good to, yeah, I, I think it's good to have that. So you can calculate in the year two. So all great thoughts. So the next thing, the, so that was the one metric that definitely applies. And this is kind of the half metric I was talking about. So cash flow. So some people and some people will analyze based on cash on cash return. Others will analyze based on what they want their monthly cash flow to be. And the same investor can use both ways of analyzing at different points in their career. So when I first started and I was like scraping pennies out of the bottom of like our cars to uh, make down payments, that cash on cash return number was really, really important to us. And then now that we're a little more flexible, I when we're buying something, we're more looking at, okay, yeah, it needs to like kind of sort of hit the cash on cash return number. We're not scrutinizing that as hard as like, okay, we need to kind of unload some of this cash because of inflation and you know get this deployed and what is that going to add to our monthly cash flow and we're a little more concerned with what it does for us monthly than really scrutinizing that cash on cash return anymore so uh julie you give a really good explanation of how those two metrics are the invert inversely affect each other do you want to hit that really quick yeah yeah so i run into situations a lot where you know buyers want to maximize their return. Of course we all do. And then they are looking at both cash on cash and cash flow, and they want to maximize both. And you have to understand that these two metrics are inversely related. And so as we discussed before, cash on cash is measuring your um, initial cash outlay against your net at the end of the year. Um, so in order to achieve an, you know, your cash on cash is very heavily affected by like your down payment. 
Um, if you are have able to do something like a 10% or a 15% down payment, your cash on cash is going to be a lot higher than if you're doing 25% down because all other things being equal, you're deploying more cash in that down payment. Now, what that's also going to do though is, and did I say that wrong? I've, what the, uh, so the larger your down payment is, the lower your cash on cash return is going to be because you're deploying more cash upfront. Um, that's right. But your cash flow will be higher because your mortgage payment is going to be lower as a result of that higher down payment. So you cannot have a incredibly high cash on cash and an incredibly high cash flow because of just the down payment alone. There are other factors that could, you know, could play a part, but that's the biggest one. So if you want the most cash flow and you've got the extra cash to put into a down payment, that's going to be the way to go because your mortgage, you know, your debt service is going to be lower. But if you have limited cash and uh, and want to get it working for you, you can have a you know, a much better cash on cash return with your lower down payment, but be aware that your cash flow is going to be impacted because of the higher mortgage payment. Yeah. I've had a situation where a client came to me before and said, Hey, I'm having trouble making the numbers work on this property. Can you look at it? And I said, okay, yeah, I'll look at it. And they said, okay, cool. So here it is. And it was a great deal. And they said, I, I looked at it, um, did my little quick analysis of it. And it came out to like, I can't remember, like 27% cash on cash return. It was like really good. And he said, but wait a minute. No, I, I, I want to increase my cash flow. So I'm going to put down 35%. I had run the numbers at 20% down. So that cash on cash return looked fine to me. And he said, well, you know, I'm putting down 35% and I can't make the cash on cash go above X. I don't have it in front of me and I can't do the math in my head. Um, and I said, well, it's because you're putting down 35% is why the higher amount you put down, the lower your cash on cash return is going to be. But like Julie said, because if, the more you put down, because your debt service is going to be lower, the higher your monthly cash flow will be. And they, the reason they were putting down 35% instead of 20 was because they wanted that higher cash flow. And I said, well, you're just going to have to kind of dismiss what the cash on cash return is. Then you can have one or the other, but typically not both, just depending on your um, down payment. And that's not to say that, you know, a 20% down payment isn't going to get you a good cash flow. Like it's not, I'm not saying that a good cash on cash return always means not good cash flow, but it's just basic. The more money you put down, the lower your debt service, the higher your cash flow will be. Yeah, you can't have the best of both worlds. It's just a scenario where you realize that emphasizing one will come at the expense of the other, but it doesn't mean that one is bad. It, you know, they both should be in an acceptable range, but you're not going to have the highest possible cash on cash for that deal as well as the highest possible cash flow. It depends on what your goals are. If your mm -hmm. your goals are to uh, to live off of it, then your monthly cash flow is probably going to be more important than the total cash on cash return. Yeah, I I'll add into this too. Like, you can go out for for anyone listening. If you're trying to grow your portfolio quickly, then you're going to lean more towards trying to get that cash on cash, so you can quickly you know take that cash that you get and redeploy it. And you're not spending, you know, sinking a lot of money into a particular property. Um, I mean, think, think, think about it this way. You know, you can go out and buy a bunch of one, two bedroom properties and they're going to have a great cash on cash return compared to say a five or six bedroom property. Um, but your cash flow is a lot less. So a part of it too, is how, how much do I need to be making for it to be worth it for me to manage that particular property, especially if you're man self-managing as well. So what I mean by that is, you know, the last property I purchased was this big seven bedroom property and the cash flow is going to be around $50,000 yearly. So I won't buy a property that doesn't cash flow less than $50,000 because it's not worth my time. And, but if you have that time, you're able to trade for money. So time for money, then yes, you can buy smaller properties and get that high cash on cash return. So it's really depends on, I love what you said, Chuck, it depends on your goals. So where are you in your investment stage? What are you really looking for? If you're really just looking to, you know, quickly grow your portfolio, you're getting started, focus on cash on cash. If not, 
focus on the cash flow, put more money, a, a larger down payment on that property, have that equity, and then also be building that cash. So all great info. I, I think that the listeners are really going to get a lot of value out of this. So I'm really excited. But let's talk about, I almost said numbers. Let's talk about terms that you hear often in real estate investing that don't really work as well for short-term rentals because they are really more of like a commercial asset number. Uh, the first one that I want to talk about is NOI or net operating income. Can anybody give me a definition of what that is? I can. Um, net operating income is looking at your gross revenue minus your operating expenses. So that's going to be your expenses, not including your debt service. And that's really, really key. That's going to be your, um, your utilities costs. That's going to be, you know, like landscaping, maintenance, any, any of those aspects of the property that go into the day-to-day -day operation, but it does specifically exclude your debt service. So your principal interest taxes and insurance, or is it just principal and interest actually, Avery? I guess, well... I guess it's kind of subjective on if you have your taxes and insurance escrowed into escrowed. your debt service. I don't know what the exact definition is. Chuck, do you know? Well, I mean, it, it typically excludes taxes to begin with, but insurance is an ongoing operating cost, uh, cost so mm -hmm. it should include that. You tend to also not include debt service as well. Um, so, and yeah, you don't depreciation or amortization. Mm -hmm. uh, any of those uh, afterward items. I was just going to say, if, if I'm looking at a multifamily listing, an apartment complex or some other commercial property, a lot of times the listing will talk about what the NOI is. And that's a really important number for, you know, analyzing something like an apartment building where your expenses are pretty, you know, your expenses and revenue are relatively fixed. You know, you've got the units that are leased out at X number of dollars per month. It's going to be that way for the full term of their lease. So it's very predictable in that respect, but um, but because you are coming into the property with a new debt, they're not accounting for the expense of your debt. Um, and that's a nice, neat metric that's really easy to work with. But the, I think the real key is you still have to take the debt service out of that equation. So if the you know, NOI is, you know, is $50,000 or whatever. Just remember that's not your cash flow. That is that is the profit before the debt service. So make sure you back that number out to get your true profit or cash flow. Another thing with short-term rentals is your revenue and expenses are a lot more variable than they are with with long-term rentals or commercial properties. Um so just know that you need to be a little more flexible and work with ranges when estimating expenses and revenue than you might have to with a commercial property. Yeah. So guys, where I don't want you guys to get tripped up on this is when you're watching YouTubes or, you know, any, any of the vast amount of content out there about analyzing short-term rentals, when people use the word NOI or net operating income, that's not your cash flow. That is not your net income at the end of the year. I don't want you to be confused by that because if you're watching and they say, okay, well on this property there, you have 20,000 20, NOI your mortgage could still be 25,000 a year and you could that could be a property that if you mess up the definition of that metric that you're now in the negative. So, thing to remember when people are using NOI that does not include your debt service aka your mortgage. All right. The other the big metric that a lot of people want to use that just does not work for short-term rental and we're all about to explain why is cap rate. So does anyone want to give us a definition of cap rate? Well, at the simplest level, cap rate is taking the net operating income and dividing it by the property value. Um, but it doesn't really work well for single family homes. Uh, it's, it's meant more for uh, better analysis of properties where there are shared properties or community properties, shared walls, and the kind of things that you can't break down into an individual home. Um, not to say that people don't do it, and there there's some places that'll still push it as a way of measuring the profitability of a short-term rental, but it's not as good a measure as 
general return on investment, net, net operating income, or uh, the cash on cash returns that we've been talking about. Well, and I think another important thing to understand is cap rates are frequently how how commercial properties are valued. So when commercial properties change hands, there's generally a market cap rate or a range of, of cap rate that that type of property fits within. And so it becomes an advertising point. Well, the cap rate on this is higher or lower, but it's usually within a certain range that's appropriate for that. And that's how they assess the value of the property. It makes X amount of dollars. The going cap rate for this type of property is 6%. So you do the math and you arrive at more or less your asking price. And, um, and single family properties are not valued that way. Single family properties are valued according to, you know, comps, residential comps, an appraiser will go out and determine the value based on similar properties that have sold recently. It is not related at all to the revenue that the property generates. And that's a very, very different way of assessing value. And that's particularly true if you're in markets that are not heavy STR markets. Yeah. Smokies, um, you know, it, it, up there, the, uh, uh, the STRs have actually brought the rest of the market up. Still, <laughs> don't get me wrong, it's still not a good measure. You know, but if you're out in, you know, Smithville, Illinois, I, I hope that's not a real place, but, um, <laughs> you know, and you're the only STR in town. Uh, no, it's it's not going to make any sense to you whatsoever to use a cap rate. So in summary, the cap rate is evaluated partially by the income of the property and the cap rate using the income determines the value of the property. That's how commercial properties are valued is based on their income. Whereas single families, which most short term rentals are single family residential, are valued based on sold residential comps. So an appraiser is, if you've got two houses next door to each other, one's a short-term rental making $100,000 a year. One is just a second home that's not rented making $0 a year. An appraiser is going to value those the same, you know, assuming square footage and, and finishes and everything are, are similar. So um, those are going to be valued the same. It doesn't matter that one is making $100,000 a year. So now where it can get a little fuzzy is that it can, the income can indirectly affect the desirability of a property for investors, which can drive the price up because they're willing to pay more. So you might get into a multiple offer situation. But in terms of the straight appraisal, uh, it's cap rate does not work for short term rentals that are single family residential homes. Now that we've got those definitions out of the way, we're going to get into the data and analysis, which is can get really, really hairy and we can get way off in the weeds on this. So um, there's a few places that you can get short-term rental data, a few websites. Some of them are better than others. I think they all pull things a little bit differently. Uh, Kenny can speak more to that than I can. Uh, but one place that I do not put any stock in for um, getting short-term rental income data is that property-specific uh Rental history. Sorry, I totally lost my words for a minute. So the rental history of a property is not data. It is one random data point. It's not data plural. And I don't like to use that because you don't have a reference point. So if you're just looking at the income that a property is done with the property manager or the owner, that is one random property's performance with one random property manager. And you don't have any frame of reference for oh, is that good? Are they blowing it out of the water or are they underperforming or are they performing about average? So it really doesn't mean anything because it's just one piece of data. Um, so the other places you can find data, obviously STR Insights, Kenny's company, AirDNA is another one, Rabu is another one. I don't know enough about data to really know the differences between how things are pulled. But Kenny, do you want to kind of uh, share some insight on onto like, how that data, how we how we get this data, basically. How do we get this data? Yeah, sure. So data Rabu, I mean, everybody, I, I really don't want to speak for any companies in particular, but I pretty much know. Uh, I'll, I'll just speak for us. How about that? So Sounds good. Yeah. 
So we are getting pulling data from uh, Airbnb and VRBO. Um, now, a lot of people, you know, they say, well, what about, you know, direct booking sites? Well, we can't, we don't see those sites. We don't track every direct booking site. However, uh, whenever someone makes a booking and blocks off dates in either the calendars, if they're synced with Airbnb and VRBO, we pick those up and we can see those rates. So um, there is a little bit of estimation with that when it's a direct booking. I'm just throwing that out there, getting it out front. But um, basically, you know, that's what that's what everybody's doing, uh, and that's how we're we're tracking all of these listings. Um, I think you you brought up a good point going back to seeing, you know, especially if a property management company is is running a particular property, they might not be listed on Airbnb or VRBO, you know, so um, getting that that that's an opportunity part of the market that they haven't even attacked yet. So um, I really think there's a lot of value in, in understanding where you currently are. You can look at that data point, like you said, but you've got to start trying to forecast and look at other uh, properties in that market, how they're performing and are similar to that property you're trying to analyze. That's a good, a good definition. So I see people a lot of times who will say like, yeah, I want to see the quote real data though. And I think that it's important for everybody to understand, like Kenny said, like they can't measure direct booking sites. There's no way to know the quote real performance of any property without every single owner in every single market opening up their books and metrics to us to see. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's what you really need is their bank account. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so. Um, these are what we have. And another thing that I see a lot of people say is like, well, I went on one site and it said this property should do X. And I went on another site and it said this property should do Y. Which one's right? Well, my advice would be to maybe to like take an average of those because I don't think any one is necessarily more right than the other. What's probably happening, and Kenny can speak to this more than I can, uh, you know, maybe one is picking up a few different properties than the other. I'm not exactly sure how that would how that plays out. Yeah. So what they're doing, and this is why I don't like to use free calculators. This is why we don't offer a calculator is because it's, it's picking up a, a radius around a particular property that, and then within the, the radius, it's giving comparable properties that fit a bed bath and maybe accommodates like, so how many guests that can be accommodate accommodated. However, there are so many different factors when we're evaluating a property beyond just the bed and bath. We need to know the property type. We need to know the quality of the property. We need to know the amenities, the views, the, you know, access to the beach or, or you know, where it's located. And so the problem with doing that radius method is it discounts the location and the quality of the property. And so a better way to do it is if you're on two different sites or three different sites and you're seeing different numbers, you need to be looking at a range rather than an exact number. So uh, exact numbers are not great for, you know, when I, when I run performance for my own properties, I, I run three, I run a good, better, best model. So what's a good, you know, good scenario that I think this property can do what's a better and then what's a best. And that's taking a range. And so I would, you know, you can take the average, like Avery said, or for me, I'm looking at a range, you know, from this site to this site, what are they saying? And it's going to be a range and you can use that to do your analysis. So. One thing I really want to highlight about that is I 1000% agree. I do not like any of the property specific calculators. So what I mean by that is uh, a lot of the companies will have them. Um, some of them, like I know AirDNAs, you can buy like license theirs and put it on your website and like put it, brand it to yourself. Uh, but I don't like the property specific analyzers because what it's, what they do is they take this big, huge market wide sample size and shrink it down to like four or five properties. And we'll get to the enemy method in a second, which you almost went to. Um, but if there's an outlier in any of those five properties, so if you're looking at an, like a four bedroom and there's a four bedroom next door to you that accommodates the same amount of people that yours that you're looking at buying accommodates and it's that, picking up that data, but that property looks terrible in pictures and uh, the pictures are blurry. It's like got somebody's thumb in it and it looks like a haunted house and the roofs, there's shingles missing and the windows are broken. Like people are not booking that house. And so that's dragging the data artificially down. Same thing on the other side is if you've got a house across the street from you 
that again, sleeps the same amount of people, same number of bedrooms, but it's like the coolest house in the history of the world. And it's, you know, a rocket ship that blasts off three times a week. They're going to be getting more than you. And that's going to like wildly more. That would be an outlier on the higher end dragging that data artificially up. So those property specific analyzers where you go type in an address and it tells you can vary wildly and be very inaccurate in both directions. So I try to stay away from those. <clears throat> and um, Kenny kind of started to go this direction of, of looking at the properties around you. And there's things that, that the data can't tell you, like why the property is performing the way that it does. And at the short-term shop, we use what we call the enemy method for that. Uh, Chuck or Julie, do you want to give a definition of the enemy method? Well, the the, the simple version of it is that um, you're going to be looking at those properties yourself. Simply look them up, uh, track them down on Air, or Airbnb or Verbo or even some of the other sites. Determine what they're uh, how close of a match they are to you. You're going to look at what their performance is, look at their reviews. You're going to look at their uh, daily rates that you can see, maybe even, you know, fill in a couple of dates on the calendar to determine what they're charging and then try to estimate from that what their annual revenue is. Um, you have to keep in mind, you know, you have to look at seasonal times. So uh, to use the Smokies as an example, you certainly need to look at uh, June, but you also need to look at January, May and October. Uh, and the shoulder seasons and get a get a really good picture of what you think that property is doing and then repeat that process. You also do want to look at the reviews, though, because reviews can have a direct effect on the amount of revenue. So you don't want to be looking at one property that's near a five and then using it, comparing it to another property that's a three point eight. Well, I think number of reviews is important too, because you can get a more consistent picture from a property that has, a, you know, of substantial amount of reviews versus one that might just have five reviews. Maybe that means it's new or maybe it means it's not well-managed, but uh, I think looking at the quantity of reviews can also be helpful. Yeah. I personally, I think that if you're doing the, the enemy method and you, you should be doing the enemy method, you have to spend at least 15 to 20 minutes looking at each listing, probably a little more. Um, and while you're doing it, you're not just looking to determine the pricing. I mean, you can use it for other things too. Are people going out of their way to mention great cleaning in their reviews? Well, you want to make a note to find out who that cleaner is because <laughs> you're going to need that information later. But you can solve multiple uh, research projects at one time by doing this on the properties around you. Uh, kind of a, a real world example that I want to share so you guys can kind of like put these these two pieces together. And then I want to dive further into the data with Kenny. So um, a real world example where I've seen why you have to use both. Like you have to use the data to get your range of what the property of that size should be able to do. But then you have to always add in the enemy method for those intangibles that data can't tell you. Like data can't tell you that the pictures are bad. Data can't tell you that it has, you know, better, a, a better, like a larger living room or what have you. So <clears throat> in a specific instance that I've seen, and I've given this in other, other scenarios, other podcasts. So sorry if you guys have already heard this. Um, so people, let's say as it relates to the Smokies, people will you say you're looking for a four bedroom and you're looking at the Smokies numbers, like the Sevierville numbers. Well, right outside of Sevierville is an area called Newport and it's not a short-term rental area. There's not pretty rental cabins. It's like a small town, not a super nice town. So, uh, you're going to be looking at kind of the same data or people where I've seen people do is apply the true Smokies data to like a Newport or like to a Dandridge, which is up north. Like on, depending on where you are in Dandridge, it'll be better, closer or not as close to Smokies numbers. But they're applying that data to areas that are 30, 45 minutes away that are really a separate market, but they're applying it as if it were inside the radius of the Smoky Mountain locations, or what they're doing is they're applying the data to a property that is not the type of property that tourists like to rent in that market. So for this example, people are renting cabins. They come to the Smokies, they want to stay in a cabin or a chalet. And, you know, somebody buys a 70s brick ranch house, 
and they're trying to apply those same numbers to a four bedroom brick ranch house that is not what tourists come to rent in the Smokies, it it just doesn't work, which is why you have to use both. You have to use the data and you have to use the enemy method to apply those intangibles. Um, Kenny, so uh, we've talked a lot about you need this data. You need to look at this data. So I've got all this data. I think I want a four bedroom. How do I know that that's the right decision? So I'm looking at this data. What am I looking for to kind of help me decide what to buy? And I know that's a very open-ended question. I'm hoping you can bring it in for me. Yeah, sure. So um, what I would I would back up a little bit here and say we want to identify not just the the size the property size that you can afford in a market, but where in the market should you be purchasing? So I call these micro markets or their neighborhoods or communities where in the markets are performing the best. And you can use data to identify those areas. And then you can call Julie or Chuck or yourself and understand why are those neighborhoods doing the way that they're doing? Um, you know, I don't personally, I've been to Gatlinburg once. And so I, you know, I can look at the data and kind of say, okay, well, when I was there, I think this is probably why, but using the enemy method and then using professionals or experts in that space who know that market, they can tell you why that area is performing the way it is and, and to, to explain the data behind it. So for me, going back to, and answering your question is, sweet, I can afford four bedrooms, but you need to know where in the markets you should be targeting four bedrooms. So looking in the markets for the properties that are performing really, really well. Um, a good analogy of this is, um, I, I like to think of like the, uh, the, this was one of my friends told me about this is um, the the Burger King model. So when you're, you know, McDonald's, they spend millions of dollars researching and trying to identify the right, perfect location to buy you know, McDonald's where they're going to sell the most and the real estate's going to be the best. Well, what does Burger King do? They wait till McDonald's finds their place and they go buy a property across the street. They they save all that money and do that. And so where I'm going with this is don't go and try to forge your own path in a market that's already been established. Look where the people who are winning and excelling, what are they doing to win and excel? And then copy that. Either that's location. Most of the time it is location or it's the quality or the views of the property, but identify those things, create, you know, your, your buy box or, or your criteria, and then go in and, um, and give that to, you know, Chuck or Julie and let them say, this is what I'm looking for. These are the numbers. Why explain, you know, give me some content, uh, context behind it. And that'll give you enough to know and, uh, kind of give you a safer purchase as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have lots of, Go ahead, Julie. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I think so many of these vacation rental markets have have these corners where they're mostly cabins or mostly the beach houses or mostly, you know, the places that the tourists like to rent versus the areas that are more, you know, more primary residences, more just kind of, you know, town going about its business sorts of places. And there's always some overlap and understanding, you know, where those are and the pros and cons of each, I, you know, I think are important. It's not necessarily a rule out, you know, this area, that area specifically, but just understand, you know, why it is the way it is. Is it something you have control over or not? A lot of times it's not. Sometimes it could be a scenario where, you know, you can make improvements to the property and make it really stand out in that particular, you know, little micro market. So you just got to consider those things. And not not to overuse a, a term that in the industry, but you have to look at who your customer avatar is going to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are you trying to attract? Are you trying to attract the, the first time and the people that may just come once every 10 years and charge maximum and hope that there's enough of those people? Or are you going to try and track people that want to come back that come back every year and you want to have the kind of amenities that they come back to? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, the, the top of the mountain views in the Smokies are great. The beachfront in Destin is great, but not everyone's going to want to drop that amount, that money every year. So, or drive those roads in the case of the mountains. There yeah. are lots of people who don't want to drive to the top of a mountain, no matter how great the view is. Right. And, you know, they would rather have something that's, you know, in town with close neighbors and they're not worried about wildlife that they're not familiar with or things like that. So there's, you know, as, as one of my colleagues likes, likes to say, there's a butt for every seat. 
so um so it's just understanding what you know what that person is looking for and making sure you're serving them and not trying to be all things to all people right yeah and, and going back on the data side though i i really think that um you can you can use it for i love what you said julie about you know like not everybody wants to be on top of the mountains you know i'm thinking gatlinburg exactly i mean there's like museums and and theme parks and stuff in the city i mean that's where the families want to be you know what i mean and so where in that area is the best place to buy a rental like there that's a little micro market in and of itself and i think having that you know that knowledge and then coming to you and saying okay I think this is it. And you can say yes, because, you know, Ripley's is next door or, you know, the giant pancake house or whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, is right there. And that's where everybody wants to be. Um, gives you that confidence and that, that knowledge to get ahead. Yeah. No, you're right. Especially with uh, all the car shows and things that go on at Pigeon Forge. Those kind of things are important to, to the people that come. Yeah. It's also, well, it's important that people come for the car show and it's important to the people that come during the car show, but want nothing to do with it. So. Yeah. Basically, if you don't want anything to do with the car show, come another weekend. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, well, and Kenny, you said something too. And uh, Avery, forgive me if we're getting a little ahead of things. But uh, since you mentioned, you know, like what amenities are important, you know, what do you use to kind of figure out if you're new to a market, you know, how are you looking at, at amenities and figuring out what things are the most important? Yeah. So the biggest thing for me, uh, I, I think it kind of goes back to the enemy method, um, really looking at the enemy method across the entire market and then the little micro markets. So, um, you know, what do the top property amenities have that stand out from everybody else? Um, and then looking within and saying, you know, I call it the barrier of entry. So within my micro market, what does everybody else have that I need to have just to compete? Uh, versus, you know, do I need to have that hot tub or that game room or, you know, a new hot amenity? I'll drop this right now. EV chargers. Do I need to have an EV charger? You know, that's become mm -hmm. popular. A lot of people are driving electric vehicles, but that might not be what Chuck said. Your guest avatar, your guest avatar might not be driving a Tesla. So, you know, that might not be relevant. So you need to understand these different factors in terms of your competition. And then, then you can start saying, okay, what now that I know what my competition has and I know my guest avatar, what can I add to improve their experience to get ahead of that competition? So I want to just put in a vote for EV chargers. I drive an EV, <laughs> and uh, if I'm in a market where there's not convenient public charging, I definitely want access to that at my vacation rental. So drive-in destinations, it's really, there's some really interesting data behind it I was looking at. Um, I mean, it can definitely, I, I wouldn't say like, it, it depends, you got to make sure you're, it's towards your guest avatar. If they're not driving electric vehicles, then it's not going to do anything, but it's not that expensive to add it to your property. Um, mm. But I, for example, we're looking at Banner Elk, North Carolina. It's a nice ski resort area. There's only two public EV chargers as of today, two. So people can't drive their electric vehicles there and expect to charge it. So now that you have one I, property, you can go. I literally went through that thing. I deliberately drove a vast gas vehicle there because there was nowhere to charge my car. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, Can you uh, want to change the subject a little bit? We can come back to this, but I just want to make sure that we hit this before the end. Uh, you mentioned something offline to me last week about people getting tripped up on the percentiles and analyzing 50th, 75th, 90th. Do you want to talk about that really quick? Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, keep, I'll keep it brief. Um, so as times change, I think before we kind of got, I, I did this too. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it, I should say, but it worked. Um, we got into this habit of saying, you know, we were used to these percentile revenue percentiles, which is just the performance of how properties are performing. They fit into a percentile. So there was a 50th, a 75th and a 90th. And the rule of thumb was, okay, you know, property management companies or people who really weren't trying to be good hosts, they fell with 50th or less. And then, you know, the average and people who are trying, you know, the, a good number would be the 75th percentile. And then the really top performers is 90th and above. And so if you're running your performance and you're trying to be conservative, you would just use the 75th percentile and, and that worked out. Um, so the, 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 the biggest problem and the issue with this is now that everybody's kind of caught up in terms of competition and they're 
proving their quality, really that's changed the numbers. And you can't just use the percentiles to say that your property will do this regardless of location, regardless of the quality of the property and the type of property you're offering. So you have to be careful. I, ha I have a number of people coming to me saying, I use this and I'm not seeing the numbers that I was projecting. And they're at, they're on the beach, but they're like, you know, five blocks away from the beach and they're trying to use the 75th percentile to run their numbers and it's just not going to work. So that's the danger of the percentiles. Um, it's a good kind of backup, but it's not a way to know this. You really need to use that enemy method is going to be the best way to evaluate what a property can do in a specific area. So, um, Kenny, can, if I can change the subject or move it in a slightly different direction, uh, the numbers that people are going to get from an AirDNA or even STR Insights, what is in those numbers that folks need to know before they add it to their analysis? So like if you're talking top line revenue, what sorts right. of, what goes into that? Is that including cleaning fees or taxes and, and those sorts of things or not? Yeah, that, that that's a great question. So it's all gross. So it's like, what is the gross revenue of these properties? And it's really important that when you're doing your analysis that you, you know, you do like, this is just a gross number. This isn't taking into account expenses. I mean, a lot of people get caught up, you know, oh, I want to invest in, I'll pick on beach markets, for example, I want to invest in a beach market. Um, and, you know, they're dead set on it. And, and then they go and they look at the numbers and STR insights, they look great, cool. And they go and they'll start looking for properties, but then they call the insurance company and the insurance is like, yeah, it's going to be $18,000 a year, you know, and they didn't take that into account. So the data is great in terms of giving you kind of this high level bird's eye view of kind of market health and overall, maybe little areas within, but you're going to mark. It's property property specific when you really dive into the numbers. So there's a lot that's that's really not there that investors do need to know about before they just start diving into, you know, calling agents up and really trying to find a property. Find out what's find out what's in those numbers. Yeah. So yeah. You can estimate yeah. what the real real costs are too. Um, I mean, if you're in a market that's heavy uh, uh, or even uh, slightly heavy and people that accept pets, you know, and take a $150, $200, dollars pet fee, uh, you need to figure that out. Um, in some cases, I'm guessing security deposits may also be a part of that gross number. Uh, no, no, no. So uh, I, I guess if, if you're asking about what goes specifically into the gross number, um, taxes, uh, additional fees, security deposits, anything like that are not going to be in the gross numbers. So it's just going to be cleaning fees and then what they're 80 like. So we're running numbers and I'm I'm just going to make an assumption that everybody else is doing this, too. Um, but we're doing this. So I'll speak for us. We're running numbers based on ADRs and the ADRs in Airbnb and VRBO do not include the uh, the taxes and any other type of, you know, random fees that might be associated with a particular property. So deposits, things like that. But okay. it does include cleaning fees, right? Yes. Okay. Now, wait, wait, uh, let me touch on that for a second. <laughs> With Airbnb, if you're using a, a property management system, you know, a guestie or, or, or a hospitable or, or owner-res, and you say put an admin fee or a management fee, let's say you're trying to recover the, the cost of your $20 damage insurance policy, uh, Airbnb doesn't recognize those and it folds them into the ADR. Um, it recognizes a very small number of fees. Um, sure. So you're, in those cases, you're still not going to get a true rent number because what I choose to add on for a fee may not be what a new owner would add on for a fee. Right. Um, and until recently, why, they didn't yeah. even do that with pet, pet fees. They were folded into the rent too. Yeah, exactly. So um, I guess I guess the easiest way to do it is to know what like what the data companies are actually getting is if you go into you know Airbnb and you select dates, it will say you know five hundred dollars times however nights you selected. Mm -hmm. They're going to grab that five hundred dollars and then you know the nights and then the, there's also cleaning fees which is stag or static so they'll grab that as well um, and that's it. If anything else pops up, any other additional line items like you know. Um, uh, a pet fee or um you know you look at my listing fee i don't know <laughs> like whatever right. else 
it's not we're not going to grab it. So. Okay. And since I brought up Airbnb, let me talk about the other guy for a second. <laughs> um, sure. So if you're integrated into Verbo, either through a software package or you're one of the big property managers that are, and you collect a refundable security deposit, that's going to be part of the gross, but it's not going to be reported back later when it's refunded because you, the, the property manager or owner, are processing the credit card transaction. So... Uh, uh, so it's not necessarily, so it's not calculated in the ADR itself. It's calculated in the overall amount. Right. So when you break out that fee structure, it'll say like, this is the non-refundable thing. Right. And so we're tracking people's calendars and the rates on those. So it's not baking that into the, the rates of what okay. we're tracking. So it wouldn't be picked up. Fair enough. So yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, leave it to Chuck to get way in the weeds. Good job, Chuck. Cause people, people are going to want to know these things. So yeah. <laughs> why he's here. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I want to hit on saturation really quick because that's a word that a lot of people love to throw around anytime mm. there's a market that has a lot of listings. So Kenny. No, no, no. Let's back up. Anytime they don't get bookings. Oh, my market saturated. <laughs> right. Or I see people all the time say the short-term rental market is saturated, like the entire thing. And I'm like, yeah. okay, uh, is the entire multifamily market saturated also? The entire, entire single family long-term rental market saturated? Right. Just, come on, about, stop. What about the hotel market? Yeah. The yeah. the entire real estate market of any asset class is saturated. Um, okay. So is just because a, or if, if a market has a lot of short-term rentals, does that mean it's saturated or does it mean that there's a reason that there's a lot of rentals? I, okay. I'll, I'll take that one. Um, so from the data side, I'll, I'll let, I'll let the, uh, the, the, the agents explain, you know, the, the other, the second part to your question there um, from the data side, the way we measure saturation is by looking at uh, essentially what we call RevPAR or revenue per active rental year over year. So it has the number. So it's not necessarily the number of listings. Yes, it increases year over year, but guess what? So does revenue. Revenue has been increasing as well. Demand has been increasing as well. So what's that like equilibrium line? So for example, what's the revenue per active listing from, you know, we're in uh, February. So what's the revenue uh, from February 2022 to February 2023, the difference. And if the revenue per active listing is higher now, then there's no saturation in the market. If it's lower, then there is saturation in the market. That's how I look at it from a data perspective. Most markets do not have saturation, believe it or not, because the revenue has been increasing. The demand has been increasing higher than the actual supply. And with regulations as well, regulations have been keeping supply down because you can only short-term rent in certain designated areas and not HOA. You know, it depends on the neighborhood, but certain areas. And so that helps put a cap on supply on where you can do it and keep that saturation down as well. So, Yeah. And to give a personal experience, I was looking at this for uh, a presentation for a conference coming up that Kenny will also be at. Uh, and I was I looked at the number of rentals in the Smokies market, or I think it was Sevierville, when I bought my first one, and it was under a thousand. And I, that year, the first year I had it, that property did about 45,000. And then last year, it's there. it showed that there were over 8,000 rentals, which there are more than that, but it's Sevierville only not Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge. And that same property did 85,000. So that is something that I want. Well, there's two things I want to hit on there. One is that just because there's a lot of rentals does not mean it's saturated. You know, according to that data, there were 10 times more rentals and I still made double the income. Something else that I want to point out when you're looking at this data is that especially in a market like the Smokies, where up until 10, maybe not even 10 years ago, up until the last five to 10 years ago, there were thousands of rentals from the 60s all the way to 2010, uh, and none of them were on Airbnb and Verbo, Verbo, or those things hadn't fully, those OTAs hadn't fully established themselves. So when you're looking at the number of rentals in a market, 
So those companies that are tracking the number of rentals are typically getting their data from Airbnb and Verbo. So when I first started, were there only 800 rentals in the Smokies? No, there were only 800 that were on platforms that were able to be tracked by these data services, but there were thousands of rentals. Um, so that's something that I want that I think a lot of people don't think about is that that number of 10 times more isn't exactly accurate because what's happening is that all these properties that have been short-term rentals for decades and decades are now moving on to the Airbnb and Verbo platforms. So it looks artificially, the, the increase looks artificially high when it's not that, oh my gosh, these people are buying what used to be primary homes and long-term rentals and converting them to short-term and flooding the market with all that. That's not what's happening. Everything was already a short-term rental. It's just changing management styles off of these local mom and pop property management companies that were not using the OTAs that are being tracked by the data services. And now they are. So it's just a changing of hands and management style. Yeah. And I think another thing people worry about saturation and, oh, there's so much competition. Well, yes, but it means that, you know, you need to be thoughtful about what you're buying and make sure that you can you know, you can beat out the next guy. It, you do not have to be the best in your entire market. You just need to not be the worst is kind of how it boils down because there's so much demand. There's, you know, especially in the high seasons, but even year round, if you are making the effort to run your property well, to have good pictures, you know, to just keep things fresh and updated. And I just mean, in, you know, in small cosmetic ways, I don't mean you're redoing the kitchen every five years. Um, you know, that goes a long way because there's a ton of these properties that again, have been around for decades and decades. And a lot of times they haven't really been touched in that long. Yeah. And, um, and so don't get so caught up in, in like, oh my God, there's 10,000 other cabins in the Smokies. Like how can I possibly compete? Well, there's millions and millions of people who come through here every year they all need a place to stay. And, um, and there's, there's a lot of room for a lot of different types of properties. It is not set it and forget it. This is not a completely passive endeavor. This is running a small business, but it, it's not impossible to outperform, you know, even the majority of the market. It's, you know, it's, it's a way of thinking about like, what is, what am I really competing against? Um, and you are not competing against the other 8,000 or 10,000 rentals. You are competing against a certain data set for a certain type of customer. And, um, and there are a lot of ways that you can set yourself apart to do that. Yeah. And of those millions of people that are coming to the Smokies every year, depending on the size of your property, you really only need to capture 50 to a hundred of those people to book. Uh, and, Kenny, this is a complete assumption on my end. Maybe you know, you're familiar with the data to back it up. If a market were to become saturated, not every single property in that market is going to feel that reduction in income. It would typically be the bottom 15 to 20% that feel it. Is that correct or incorrect? Um, yes. Yes. So I I mean, we that that is supported in the data too. So uh, a lot of markets, what we're seeing is this like growth. Uh, so uh, I'll call it the wealth divide of short-term rentals. So properties that will say percentiles, so 75th and above, 80, 80 percentile and above on average are doing better year over year. And properties that are in the 50th percentile or less are doing worse year over year. So it's like this growing divide between the top performers and the bottom feeders. And so, um, yeah, so it, as markets, as competition increases or saturation um, into that market, the, the people who are below average are, are going to get hit even harder and not make the returns they're expecting. Interesting. I like being told that I'm right. <laughs> um, does anybody else have anything that maybe we didn't touch on that you think would be beneficial for the listeners to hear? That was everything I had on my list. Uh, I have one small I, I think, thing. Gets, go ahead, Chuck. I'm sorry. It gets back to sort of our enemy method and uh, um, a few other points. When you have a market like the Smokies or like here, uh, the beach, uh, the beach where 
owners want to use their properties. You have to keep in mind that, you know, the times that they use them, they're not always going to wait to the worst time of year. That's not usually not why somebody buys a property um, that they have a desire to use. They want to come during the better times of year, which is also the higher revenue times of year. And that's going to at least slightly depress numbers. It's something that's worth asking about. Um, is, uh, to, to use your words, Avery, it's just another single data point when uh, you're looking at numbers. So if, um, you know, if you have reason to think that a property is going to do $80,000 a year and you're talking to the seller and you say, how much did you use it? They say, oh, well, you know, we came out uh, maybe three or four weeks a year, a couple during summer and one during winter. Well, then, you know, the number for that property may be a little higher, or a little lower, depending on where you got the number from. Just keep that in mind. I want to add on to that, Chuck, because I think that's a lot of people uh, don't understand that. They'll say, well, yeah, the owners used it for a couple, you know, a couple weeks out of the year. Well, when did they use it? If they use it in high season, that's huge. Ask them that. Don't be afraid to ask that question and get the follow up because that that should be like you said, you need to consider that in your, you know, evaluation. So I love that. Kenny, you were gonna add something, weren't you? Um yes. I'm trying to remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> um anybody have anything they want to hit on before we sign off? Yeah, I think we covered a lot. Yeah, I think we did. So I think the main takeaway here is that is that there's it's always going to be a range when it comes to short-term rentals. You're never going to be able to analyze down to the dollar exactly what something is going to be able to do. Uh, the numbers are always going to be a little fuzzy, like I said, a range, and you're going to have to be comfortable with that range. It's not like analyzing a, an apartment building that's a long-term lease that the rent is what the rent is every single month until that person moves out. And it's very easy to analyze and fit into a spreadsheet. Short-term rentals, I think the most difficult part is getting over the hump of the analysis because it is going to be very subjective uh, depending on what type of loan you're getting, how good of a manager you are, how good at uh, optimizing the listings you are. So um, that's something to keep in mind is that it's a range, it's very subjective, and it's going to... Um, it's it's just something that is going to have a lot of moving parts that you're going to have to get comfortable with. Um, if you guys have any further questions on any of this, uh, definitely join our Facebook groups called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. Follow us on YouTube, or uh, we have a weekly call every Thursday with myself and uh, Luke, who teaches all of our management education here at the short-term shop. Uh, it's strquestions.com. You can hop on that any old Thursday and, and talk with us. So uh, also guys, if you want to buy a property in the Smokies, we've got 35 amazing agents in the Smokies that are happy to help you. And again, you can get connected at strquestions.com.